Good evening. Welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast. My name is Walt Freeman, and I am joined by my co-hosts, William Ivers and Andrew Martino. And tonight we have an interesting concept for you. We're going to compare two films, the 1969 John Wayne version of True Grit and the Coen Brothers version of True Grit. And I apologize, but the year escapes me right now. Was it 2010? Thank you. Thank you. 2010. And so the John Wayne version, uh, directed by Henry Hathaway, starring John Wayne, Kim Darby, Glenn Campbell, Struther Martin. And according to Internet Movie Database, it is the screen debut of Wilford Brimley, but I have never been able to spot where he is in that film. Hmm. And the, uh, the Coen Brothers version, directed by the Coen Brothers, starring Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, Haley Stanfield, um, and I forgot to mention in the John Wayne version, um, Robert Duvall was Lucky Ned Pepper. And in the, um, in the Coen Brothers version, Barry Pepper as Lucky Ned Pepper. And a, a cameo voiceover by um, the uh, farmer's insurance guy, uh, who also is J. Jonah Jameson in the Spider-Man yeah. movies. He is the voice of uh, lawyer J. Noble Daggett. Um, and I'm also blanking on his name. I did. Uh, what's his name? Oh, he was in Whiplash. He won the Academy Award. No? Oh, what's his name? Uh, I'll leave you hanging, Walt. <laughs> no, he's a great, he's a terrific actor, and I love him, and he's fantastic. He won, he was Academy Award nominated for Whiplash. J. Jonah Jameson, he's been in everything, and oh my goodness. Why am I there doing this? There are lots of people this? shouting at their iPhones right now. Yes, get on <laughs> J.K. Simmons. Thank you, J.K. Simmons. You and my deep apologies to J.K. Simmons if he ever hears this. We I'm love a you. Huge, I'm a huge fan of your work. You can do it all. You can do the drama. You can do comedy. Uh, and <laughs> I really dropped the ball on that one. Um, but but okay. since we do this on one take, we're not going to edit That's it. That's right. <clears throat> Words and all. So anyway, um, we're going to uh, look at both films and discuss both films and our, our opinions and takes on both films. And <clears throat> excuse me. It's interesting, though, but because I'm, I'm going to ask you guys, uh, is this a, worthy to do a one is better than or to examine, you know, the merits and flaws of both films on their own? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say uh, I'm kind of going into this, not necessarily, even though it's, it's probably difficult to avoid. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. try my best to not necessarily rank them. Uh, I, I kind of view them as just too, too different to really say one is better you know, quote unquote, than the other. Uh, they're just extremely, extremely different, different takes on uh, which, you know, a novel I have not read. So I'm going to rely on you guys to kind of inform me about that. But um, I, I'm, I'm more interested in myself than just sort of uh, examining the, the, just the interpretations of the, of the source work rather than say this one's better than the other. 
but I'm probably gonna, I'm probably gonna, my opinion's probably gonna be uh, inserted here and there. And how about you, Andrew? What's your take? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's hard. I think Bill is absolutely right. It's hard not to compare these two films, but in, in many ways, they're very different. And you can see the different takes on them. Uh, of, of course, both of them are based upon uh, Charles Portis's great novel of the same name, True Grit, which is published in 1968 by uh, Simon & Schuster. And now it's become this kind of cult classic. I think thanks mostly to the Coen brothers um, and their film version of it. It, it kind of gave this novel new life. Uh, and it's, it's really, a, if you'll excuse the expression, it's a gritty novel, um, but it has moments of, of absolute humor. Um, and I, I think it's, uh, it's something that you called it lovely, I think, Walter. And it's certainly something that I like quite a lot. So I do think that we should look at the two, the two films as, as separate entities. They may be products of, their, of their, each of their own time. Um, you know, the Hathaway version comes out in, I think, 1969, uh, and then uh, 2010 for the Coen brothers. So there's a lot of difference there. But I, I have issues with both films, um, and there are parts of both films that I like. So it's very hard for me to decide which one I like better. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, you know, go ahead, Bill. I was just going to say, um, I found it very interesting to learn how quickly John Wayne version was green lit and produced how you know how soon that it, it all transpired after the pu publication of the original book i mean rarely do you see a a film just you know uh, immediately get green lit from a a novel it usually takes a while yeah. but that might speak to the i mean i'm not sure it must it must have been a popular uh, you guys know it was it was it a extremely popular bestseller that it just had to be made immediately you know, I was not I was not aware of the novel. Um, I saw the film when it came out in 1969 um, because I'm, I'm that that old, and uh, you know, and I just remember thinking, "What a terrific film!" I, I loved John Wayne movies. I loved westerns, um, and when I heard that it was being remade, or actually not necessarily remade but retold, uh, I couldn't I couldn't have been more excited because I'm a big fan of the Coen Brothers and a big fan of Jeff Bridges. And um, but I don't remember the novel, and I read the novel well after I, I would say 20 years after I actually saw the first film and the novel blew me away and I'd like yeah. to encourage anyone out there listening you know get the novel read it it's it's a fantastic story and I it, think that's where I think it really is um if you don't mind so I'll, I'll read the first paragraph which is which is very short um but and this will lead us into the film I think directly and some of the differences for the film so this is Portis's first paragraph People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood. But it did, seem, it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Cheney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money, plus two California gold pieces that he carried in his trouser brand. Um, you know, it, he sets this sort of uh, realistic uh, stage right off the bat. And one of the things I like about the Hathaway film, which we, I want to talk about this at some point, which we call the, the John Wayne version, interestingly enough, but we don't call the Coen brothers version, as far as I know, the Jeff Bridges version, um, which tells you a little bit about the differences there. But that, you know, um, it, it, those two films 
completely, they begin differently. The Coen brothers begins, if I remember correctly, with that particular paragraph yes. where the Hathaway films um, um, shows it to us uh, actually on celluloid. And I want to speak to your point there for a second, Andrew, about how we remember True Grit as a John Wayne film, but we don't think of the modern, more modern version as a Jeff Bridges film. And this is where we're going to get into the difficult presence of John Wayne in this film. Mm. Uh, and, and this is not a criticism of John Wayne, though he has come under some criticism yeah. lately for, for the views that he held. But John Wayne was a screen presence. He was like a Cary Grant or uh, a Tom Cruise, if you will, where he always seemed to, th the role became him. And in my opinion, when you look at the John Wayne film, you see Rooster Cogburn becoming John Wayne. But if you watch the Coen Brothers film, you see Jeff Bridges become Rooster Cogburn. And I think there's a huge difference in the style. And, and you can't deny Wayne's presence looms large, but I'll be the first one to say, actually, I, I'm, I lied, I'll be the second one to say, behind John Wayne, that this should not have been the film he won the Oscar for. Mm. And he did. Uh, he even told Richard Burton that. He said yeah. he deserved it for a of a thousand days. Um, you know, in my opinion, if you're looking at the Wayne over, you're going to say maybe the searchers and, right. and, and the shootest or even arguably the Cowboys um, as performances. But, but for this, even Roger Ebert, who loved this film, said that Wayne was Wayne, you know, saying the lines. And I'm going to get into a very nitpicky detail coming up about the eye patch, but uh, that's my take on it. And again, I think that John Wayne's presence in this film, uh, in a lot of ways, makes it a John Wayne film. Whereas I think the Coen brothers, the first thing they said to Jeff Bridges is, we're not remaking the John Wayne film. We're yeah. making the novel. It's interesting you say yeah, I, that. Because, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. I was, I was no problem. I was going to say uh, I'm glad you read that, Andrew, because it reminded. I think one of the the, the 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 starkest difference between the two films is the fact that um, the Coen Brothers version is narrated. Right. Yeah. That, that's not the case with. Uh, right. With the um, the John Wayne version. So it's um, I, and I think when you watch the Coen Brothers version, to me, it it feels like a memory. It feels more like a like a, a remembrance, uh, a stylized. Um, th th there seems to be a lot of, you know, I would say distancing. Even though you know the account is, you know, you, you, I think she's a reliable narrator. You know, I, I'm not questioning that, but it yeah. seems more of a of of a memory where the um, the '69 version just seems to be just like a uh, pretty objective account. I, I think that, you're absolutely right. It does. I there, if I read um, that there was there's more dialogue in the '69 version that's that's taken from the actual text of the book itself than there is in the Cohen Brothers version. Um, so there, there are, would make there are sense, little instances there. It would make sense that the Cohen Brothers version begins not with murder, right, of right. Frank Ross. That's not. It it it's it begins with his corpse right if, if i remember correctly yeah oh, whereas the uh yeah. it sure is and we have the 69 version we actually see that whole event uh unfold so it's almost like the you know the the, the narrated retelling of the story is um it just sort of begins with her yeah immediate perspective you know that you know shocking moment where she sees her father if you if you watch the Coen Brothers version uh, through a certain lens, you, it's an incredibly elegiac story, and it, the whole thing is about times that have passed. And I think it, it you know rightly starts well, without showing the death um, of Maddie's father because 
you know, that's the starting point, but everything is told in the past. And if you notice that all of the themes throughout is all about the past, you know, whether you're arguing about whose side you fought with in the civil war or rooster falling to his knees after carrying Maddie's safety going, I've grown old or the wild West shows, which were an elegy of for the glory days of the West, everything in there, even, even the two times that Maddie arrives at Fort Smith once as a 13 year old and, and one much later in her life, I think in her forties, it's all about how times are passing us by. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's, it's just lovely. And the first one, though, is a straightforward kind of rousing narr- narrative. The, the dialogue is in present. The, the moment is present. The, the music is rousing. And the tension is really secondary to the adventure. Yeah, I think, is it safe to say, I'll, I'll phrase this in the form of a question, and I think we probably agree on this, that the 1969 version is really a John Wayne vehicle, first and foremost. Yeah. And then the second version uh, in 2010, the Coen brothers, it's much more closer to the book. Although it, again, it's not taking as much, it's not lifting as much of the actual text as, as the 69 version. The 69 version is, is um, written by a, a woman uh, whose name was Marguerite Roberts. Um, and of course the Coen brothers wrote the screenplay for the, the 2010 version, but um, th- there are. It would make sense then that the John Wayne, it would make sense then that the John Wayne version is, in, you know, from my point of view, a more, you know, sentimental, you know, and, and romanticized sort of reminiscent of, um, you know, the golden age of the Western. And I, I think by 69, even though Westerns were certainly still popular, yeah. um, the film still seemed like a throwback for, for 1969, in my, in my opinion. You know, visually, it sort of resembles... You know, let's say, let's say Shane, you know, yeah. uh, some of the earlier 1950s Westerns rather than perhaps some of the Clint Eastwood, you know, High Plains Drifter and, and, and whatnot. Um, and I, I find the Coen brothers, um, I certainly don't think it's a romanticized version of the West. Uh, the West seems to be portrayed almost like in a, like a purgatorial kind of, kind of sense. It's stylized, but it's almost like a netherworld. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Um, Absolutely. It, which I think would make sense for Maddie's memory, because this is not a fond, <laughs> a fond remembrance from her point of view. Both no, but it's the, also more of a typical... Go, go ahead, Andrew, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say that both of those, including the novel, talk about going into Indian territory, right? Um, the, the sort of parlance at the time, and, and that there's a certain lawlessness there, right? So the, 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 um, the connotations are one of, of savagery, of lawlessness, of, of chaos, as, as opposed to the civilized world that we see with, with the town, especially with the town as juxtaposed with the wilderness that, we, that they, once they cross that river, which is highly symbolic uh, on the ferry, um, they, they, they enter a completely different realm. And, and that realm is one of, of absolute savagery. And, and, you know, you can almost see that the, the Coen brothers are following the script for the hero's journey. And yeah. so they enter this land where they have to learn the laws, especially Maddie. But it's peopled by these ethereal figures that seem to inhabit a strangeness that they've never seen. And I think there's a couple of scenes in the Coen brothers version that aren't in the novel. The, the encounter with the, the bear man yeah. who buys the corpse and the encounter with the hanged man. Yeah. Uh, which I don't believe occur in the novel. And then, of course, there's Bagby's store. And... And so you're right, it just seems to be almost, uh, they've entered almost uh, the realm of Hades where they're encountering these shades of people drifting along. It's like the Coen, 
it's they're very calm. macabre, I think. And um, I'm sorry, Andrew, I think we have a little delay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. I apologize. Uh, the Cohen brothers are, are reclaiming a certain kind of myth where I think if, if we stick to this idea of the 69 version being a Wayne vehicle, and, and I, I think both of you have said it really, really well, you know, there's this sense of nostalgia with the 1969 version, not just for Westerns, but I would argue for John Wayne himself, for the movies that he used to make with, with John Ford, that, okay, he, this is a guy who's kind of past his prime. He doesn't look all that much like a tough guy. Neither does Jeff, Jeff Bridges, for that matter. They're, they're completely broken down, and I think that's done on purpose. But Wayne is, is, is clearly past his prime. Uh, in this particular film. And I think that that's not necessarily problematic, but I, I want to highlight the fact again that I think that this is a, um, a Wayne vehicle where he's really pointing uh, in a meta way towards his, his own past as an actor. Interesting, because yeah, the I, last scene is him proving he can still jump the fence on the horse. Right. Right, right. right. And I think, um, you know, I think one of the essential differences for me is I find the Coen brothers essentially a pessimistic film uh, a pessimistic statement yeah uh i think there is some you know there there is some you know uh there is some affirmation of of what um you know what transpired in terms of i th i think uh she doesn't regret what she did in the slightest but i think there's almost like a, an emptiness especially in the the scenes where she uh we see her as an older woman it's almost like it says to me um, and I, I don't think it's an anti-revenge story by any stretch. I, I don't know, no. but it's almost like it, it's, it's telling me that, you know, I, I, I do think when it comes to the 69 version, it just seems to be more of a romantic yeah. statement. Um, I find it, and I don't recall if this is the case in, in the 69 version. I, I don't even think it addresses it, whether or not she sees him again. Um, if you see if Maddie sees Rooster, I don't think it's even addressed, but I think it's very uh, sad and interesting that in the Coen Brothers version, uh, decades transpire and, and they don't they don't reunite. That's that's sad to me. I see. I see it a little differently, Bill, uh, respectfully disagreeing in that. So Maddie is a character in to me. And again, in the uh, in the Coen Brothers version, I think that Haley Stanfield should have won an Academy Award for that role plays it so beautifully but but maddie is a character who is never going to grow up meet a guy get married have kids and be a social butterfly so in my opinion the the journey that changes her you know is that she learned to care about someone genuinely other than someone in her own circle and so to me maddie's life was going to be one of lonely spinsterhood uh but she did have a brief moment where she found two people in her life that she genuinely loved. And to me, the last shot of her walking over the hill symbolically to death while leaning on the everlasting arms playing framed by the tombstone of her father and rooster, the two men in her life that she loved. Uh, and to me, that's poor Maddie was never destined for a life of love and comfort, but she got to experience enough of it to have someone she cared about to that depth. And I, I took a, it's a somber optimism, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess that'd be a better way of putting it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it's a completely negative statement, but I, I, I think it just, it leaves you with, with a bit of longing, I think, uh, the Coen Brothers version, where I think the, the 69 version seems to be a bit more, um, 
again, romanticized. I think you're absolutely right. And if I can push back a little bit on both of your interpretations, my own is that for me, the person with true grit has always been Maddie. She just hasn't seen it, right? She's searching for somebody with true grit to help. She's always been the character in the book, in the 69 version and in the Coen Brothers version. She's the character, right? She, she's the protagonist for me that, that exhibits true grit. Um, she does everything on her own. She's a 14-year-old a girl who goes out into the world, um, again, not necessarily for revenge, but to make something right. And she has this profound moral and ethical code that she follows. But the thing I want to push back on is I see the ending of, of the 2010 version as well as the book because they end almost exactly the same way. This to me is an act of defiance that, that she's saying, I'm going to live the life I want to live that she's not giving in to those conventions that, that we force upon women, especially at this particular time. She says as, as, as much in the book that marriage is not for her, children are not for her. She's running a bank, I, I believe. She's this profoundly independent woman who makes something of her life. And because it doesn't conform to what we, you know, we think of as happiness, I think, you know, and maybe I'm, I'm putting this 2020 spin on it, which I probably am, but it gives me hope and, and this scene that, that you mentioned, both of you mentioned at the end of the Coen Brothers film, uh, you know, she's a survivor. That's what the scene says to me. You know, she's walking away. There's this kind of silhouette, um, but she's the one who's walking away. So I really see the ending of it in the, in the 2010 version as is this sort of really hopeful act of defiance um, of her asserting her own, her own womanhood. And I, I wonder if, um, if, um, if for me, I wonder if, you know, kind of a bit of questioning here about your statement, Walt, about her being destined to be a, a, a spinster. I wonder, however, if the death of her father sort of pushed her in that direction, you know, sort of uh, discouraging her from wanting to get too close to people because, you know, as they say, all relationships of a loving kind will end in pain. On some, yeah. to some degree, but she, but and, she was always uh, painted as even up to that point she was kind of a you know very sort of stand. I mean, the, she sleeps among dead bodies in a mortuary the first night, and you know when the when the undertaker says you you can kiss him if you like, and she's like no thank you the spirit has fled. Yeah, it's like so she, I think she the change in Maddie is very very incremental. But I also would add to it two things real quick to both of your points: the mark of a great film is that people can see these different things in it right. and none of them are necessarily wrong in comparison to the other. Um, and, and the other was that, uh, Oh man, I lost my thread of thought again. I'm having a hard time with it tonight. I apologize. I wonder um, if the, the, the Maddie in the 69 version to me seemed to be more childlike, you know, she had the, she had the strength, the strength was there that you, that, um, that her character should have. But to me, she came off a bit more, um, more vulnerable. And I wonder in the book, is there ever a, a time where she questions what she's doing? Because, you know, throughout the films, and I think both films might be the same in this way. I, I really need to see the 69 version a couple more times. Mm -hmm. uh, but she doesn't flinch really about her mission. No. And doesn't that, isn't that a part of the hero's journey that you have to, at some point question the very nature of what you're doing? Well, she does question but her she choices. Doesn't... 
with, with it. And, and again, this, this ties into the point that I had forgotten, which I have now remembered, which, which ties all this in. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, Maddie is definitely the, the character who, who has the true grit that she's not self-aware about, but, but each of the other characters uh, elevates themselves to grit. Like Rooster comes across as a drunken blowhard, but he turns out to be a man of incredible courage and, and fortitude. And of course, Labeef, I love Cow and Rooster, Labeef and, and, and Rooster, but uh, Labeef seems to be a bit of a preening uh, fool, but he, it turns out to be a man of deep nobility and loyalty and, and, and ability. And so um, I think that, you know, that, that ties into what you were saying, Bill. Um, sorry. They bring out the best in each other yeah. in, in certain circumstances. So, you know, they, they need each other. It takes, it takes those situations that brings those three people together to, to transcend their own station in life. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. For me, for me, the, uh, the John Wayne rooster, he seemed, he, he came across to me as uh, that, like he was once a good upstanding man at, at one, at some point in his life. Um, you know, beneath his drunken exterior, you know, he, there, there still seems to be under that, like a code of decency. Mm. Right. Um, you know, kind of like the time in which it took place, you know, 1969, it, what other year exhibited, you know, the, the flaws, but also, you know, some of the goodness, uh, you know, that, that is uniquely American. But, I, you know, Bridges Rooster is dark, I think, a lot more dark in, in his core. You know, he seems like almost like a dead man uh, walking in a world that really has passed him by. So um, I just, I find the, the Bridges version just um, a, a, a lot more, um, menacing and if, if that makes more sense more, more far uh, far gone than the than the um, John Wayne version and there's a wonderful shot that reinforces that menacing thing because I, I mean again one of the things between the two is Labeef and, and Rooster's bickering in, in the Wayne version never really seems to get beyond just nattering at each other but it could, in the other version, the Coen Brothers, it could turn deadly at any second. Yeah. You realize these two men are capable. But there's a wonderful scene when um, they think that Labeef is bird-dogging them, and they're waiting, and it turns out uh, to be the bear. No, I'm sorry. I apologize. They're under the, the hanged man, and the Indian rides up. And the Coen Brothers have this wonderful shot where they pull down behind Rooster, and by way of greeting, all Rooster does is pull his coat back and rest his hand on the pistol of his gun. Now the encounter does not turn violent, but but to me that's that's the malevolence that's there. Like that's why Maddie chose him. She had three choices: you could get a guy that brings him in alive, <laughs> or you get a guy that more likely to kill him. And that he's the first one she goes to it, and he, and he shows it. Um, he shows that he is not above whatever he has to do to get the job done. Yeah, that scene that you mentioned is is my favorite scene in the entire movie. Um, I think it's, again, it's not in the, it's not in the novel. It's um, not in the 69 version, but there's something so beautifully cinematic about that. And, and I think that it's just, it really speaks to the lawlessness of that particular time and place uh, in the United States that, you know, we, we, we like to think that we're civilized, but we're really one step away from, from barbarism <laughs> at any, uh, at any time. And that's part of the American mythology that we sometimes forget. Yeah. And it has one of the funniest lines in the whole movie. And Rooster's dialogue, which my, my biggest criticism of the film, 
this bridges is sometimes hard to hear, but if you ever watch it with subtitles, when she says, why did they hang him so high? And he says, perhaps in the belief that he'd be more dead. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't that scene it just kills me. I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned Bridges's um uh performance uh in the voice I couldn't understand a word he was saying and I really thought I would have if I was the director I would have coached him a little bit differently to to come across a little less um mumbled uh, yeah. in a way yeah that 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 note is hit a little bit too frequently you know I you know we get it you're grizzled you know yeah. like I think he, I think he could have you know varied that a bit you know hit hit a few more notes um why do you think um here's a question for you what do you think actually before i get to that which film do you think shows a closer relationship between the two characters um maddie and, and rooster do they, do they both have different takes on their relationship or do you think they you know they both get it right well they both get it right uh in that you know, I have a whole metaphor about this, which I'll launch into later. But uh, to me, I, I watched John Wayne's performance. and He kind of condescends to Maddie quite a bit. He calls her baby sister. and He always talks to her, down to her. Whereas I think Jeff Bridges, you know, um, he does more than just suck the poison out of her wound in the snake bite. I mean, he, he carries her until to the point that, you, you, you know, you, you see Blackie's heart explode and he has to put the, the horse down, which is a brutal scene. But Rooster goes on, and you can almost see that he's he's also about to, his yeah. heart's about to explode. And, um, you know, th there's this really, m one of Bridges' best line deliveries, when he climbs down in the pit together and she's snake bit, and he's been grizzled and treated her rough, and he's been a drunken, you know, lout the whole time, but he, he's about to cut her hand, and he just says, look away now. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a tender moment. And so to me, I think, and again, this goes back to no offense to John Wayne fans. John Wayne was a better type, but Bridges is a better actor. I agree. And, and, and I think that he gets, I think that causes that bond to be a little deeper for me in the Coen Brothers film. I, I think you're absolutely right. But having said that, I, I'm going to get, I, I think, hate mail for this. I prefer John Wayne as Rooster uh, over Jeff Bridges. Um, I, I just, you know, for me, it is... That's Dear Andrew. <laughs> I just liked Wayne's performance more, even though it was a performance. And, you know, I fell into the Coen Brothers film more as, as a story. Um, and maybe it's because I saw the Wayne version long before I saw the Coen Brothers. And, you know, those things about you see that the, the first time and, and that sticks with you more. But, uh, but I That's think it's always possible. Yeah. And like, okay, so for me, you know, I, I again, I, I don't want like one over the other. I think they were they they're both they both have their strengths. But I really uh, one speech or one moment in the film that in both cases have you know touched me pretty well it was when he recounts his past life. You know, his first marriage and the fact that he has a uh, a son that he has no no more contact with. I found the way that um, it has to do with the, the writing, of course, but the way Jeff Bridges delivers that little little speech i think moved me more than when john wayne did yeah. you know when john wayne you know uttered that speech it seemed to be more of a okay a relaying of information where i think uh bridges seems genuinely uh, remorseful over it you know especially when he says um uh well you can re refresh my memory here so something along the lines of it i didn't mean anything by it about yeah. how about how he was hard on him or, or yeah. seemed to be harsh yeah. on him. Yeah. You know, that touched me uh, a lot. And I, I think it's an important moment 
Yeah, and I, I'm, uh, I'm respectfully disagree with you, Andrew. I, I really, um, I love John Wayne and I love the film, but I, I have to give my my props to Bridges. And there's there's this one little detail that I noticed throughout both films that, again, you know, they're different actors, they're different styles, and I'm not one over the other. But I remember John Wayne uh, had his eye patch made so he could see through it, uh, whereas as Bridges didn't. And so you notice in scenes, and it's especially in the in the courtroom scene at the beginning, which is one of my favorite scenes, but all throughout the movie, um, John Wayne looks directly at the person he's talking to, and you can tell that he's looking at them with two eyes, yeah. whereas Bridges is constantly cocking his head to look out of his eye. And for me, that's just a detail that, that, that creates the character or breaks it for me when I see it happen. And I know that's a nitpicky thing. Um, I just think that, that um, I really relate for, for little details like that, but overall with, with Bridges' ability. Because um, again, I want to uh, real quickly just compare. There, there's a scene in both films where they're waiting to ambush the people at the dugout. And Rooster tells the story of how he robbed a, a high interest bank in Mexico. And Maddie is, is offended by that. He's trying to defend. He's like, I never took a man's watch. I never did that. And, the, and the, the payoff line is, but it's still robbery. And Rooster says, yeah, that's the position they took in New Mexico. That's why he had to flee. I just think, again, Bridges delivers the dialogue as if he's lived the life. So... I think yeah. I, I, I can't disagree with anything you've said. I, and, and the eye patch, I think that's a wonderful attention to detail. I don't think it's nitpicky at all. And you're absolutely oh, right. And, and I noticed that as well. Um, and not to harp on this point, because I, 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 there's so much to say, but that scene with Jeff Bridges in the courtroom, I think is, is magnificent. The way it's lit, oh, yeah. especially, it, it, it really sets up the character of Rooster in a way that's far, far better than, than the 69 version. It's a little long. I think that seems a little long, if you ask me. Really? I, I love the scene, but I, I think I think that I could have chopped a couple of minutes off it. <laughs> Nitpick. Um, can you guys tell me that is the novel is there is there dark comedy in the novel? I think so. Yeah, yeah very dry. It's all throughout but, it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all of Labeef. Labeef is is why I love I love the character of Labeef. I love Matt Damon's take on it. Um, he's he's a comic figure but made more noble by the fact that you, you kind of think he's a little foolish for a while. Mm-hmm. Even to the pronunciation of his name, right? Which would, we would think is Leboeuf or, you know, and, and Portis talks about the pronunciation of his, of his name. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that, that's something that plays a, a role. It is. It is. Yeah. And again, there's poor, poor Glenn Campbell. I mean, yeah. um, he said of his own role, and uh, he said, I've never acted in a film, and after seeing True Grit, my, my record stands, um, he knew it. Yeah. And, and again, you know, Hathaway was constantly screaming at him because he froze up. And it, it, it's sad because there's a nuance to the character of LaBeef. Matt Damon's a pretty good actor. Yeah. He brings it out. Um, whereas- yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. Glenn Campbell. Yeah, you're right. It, his, his take on the character is a little, little flat, right? It kind of lacks depth, but I think with, with Matt Damon's portrayal, he seems to bring out the, obviously he's a very proud proud man but i think extremely insecure and he you you see that that duality where he just he's one of those people that you know he's always trying to upstage and and puff you know puff himself up but the cause of it is really kind of like a deep insecurity but in the end you know he is a uh, he's a noble guy he's a principled guy and he he it seems to be a little use for him after you know it's at at a certain point (laughs) he's sort of like 
All right, I'm done. Well, they do get rid yeah. of him in the Coen Brothers version. He, he, they get rid of him for a while. There's a tension and he departs, whereas the, he, there's never a, a break. But I wanna, this is where I want to introduce my kind of metaphor and talk about how I think the story is told differently. Um, I think that watching both films is like listening to an orchestra play a, say, a classic piece by Beethoven versus listening to a high school band. The piece itself is wonderful, but some notes are going to be hit sharper than others in a more professional take. And so the example that I want to give is in the scene where, uh, and to me it's a crucial scene in the movie, where Labeef makes the shot, where he kills Ned Pepper from, from, from 300 yards away with a, hen, with a um, Sharps carbine. So in the um, Coen Brothers version, and of course Labeef lives in the Coen Brothers version, but the moment is focused on that shot. The tension is there. Rooster's down. He's under his horse who, who's been shot. Pepper's riding up to him and is, is getting ready to shoot him. And the camera keeps cutting to Labeef. He's taking a deep breath. He's hoping that he makes the shot. And he, and he makes the shot. And he's, he's getting ready to celebrate when, bam, lucky uh, Cheney hits him on the head with a rock. Okay. To me, that's beautiful because the tension in that scene is whether he makes that, that shot or not, that impossible shot. But if you watch the John Wayne version, they put the focus on the fact that Cheney is sneaking up on LeBeef with a rock. Yeah. The shot is almost an afterthought. And they don't even show it. Maybe, you know, maybe it was because of Campbell's limitations. But for the most part, they keep cutting back to Cheney, who's hiding behind a tree, picking up a rock, getting closer. And I think that that's the difference between where, you know, a, a good film and a great film is, is where you focus the scene. And to me, that's an example of why I feel... I like that. Yeah. Throughout. That That's the Coen Brothers point. is a better film. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I, and I might offend you, Walt, here. I don't know if I care for Josh Brolin's interpretation of Tom Shady. I, again, I have not read the book, but, you know, rather than a deranged, depraved killer, you know, his, his Tom Shady is so dim-witted that you almost <laughs> want to let him off, let him off the hook. Like, can he really be a... <laughs> accountable for this where you have the uh, the 1969 tom cheney he is you know he's truly menacing you know he's he's truly diabolical and he, he seems rather than just a complete idiot mm. uh he's um evil you know where um so uh, again i'm not sure what the book you know how the book portrays him i think brolin's but, brolin's portrayal is closer to the book and is but it? having said that, I agree with you. I don't like Bo Brolin's interpretation of that character at all. But neither did I like the actor who played in the 1969 version either. I think both of them are 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 missing missing something. I like Josh Brolin. You know, he was in No Country for Old Men. He was fantastic with Coen Brothers. Uh, but this, right. I think, I, you know, I don't know what he was going for, and it might not be Josh Brolin's fault either. Um, but it was it was it was almost like too much too much comic relief yeah. for the character who yeah. is the complete motivation behind this whole thing yeah. in the secondary villain played by in the 69 version, Robert Duvall, uh, he seemed, you know, he was far more, you know, evil. And, and yeah. he, you know, I don't think, I don't think the real villain should be upstaged by the, the secondary villain. Yeah. Um, by the way, I, I find this, I find the 69 version, a very interesting movie in that you have, you know, obviously with John Wayne, you know, golden age, uh, acting uh personality acting uh and mingled within the same film you have just the, these new gener you know these actors of a new generation who are yep. extremely realistic you know dennis hopper 
uh, Robert Duvall, who are playing, who, who, who you know, they, they portray their characters in a far more gritty, realistic manner. Is that, does that make sense? Does it yeah. come off like almost like two styles within the same movie? Yeah. Oh, very much so. And they, and ironically, Wayne did not get along with Duvall or Hopper. <laughs> uh, now, um, so I'm going to go back and I, uh, again, um, I think it's the writing, uh, the, uh, with, with uh, Tom Chaney's character. And, yeah. but I, I tell you what, it's a delightful scene for me when he sees her in the river and he is utterly befuddled yeah. as to why she is there. Um, so, you know, again, I, I like Roland's performance, but I think that he was too much actor for the role. Yeah, maybe it's not a huge role. Yeah. I think he could have played him more menacing and, and evil and, but you know, it was a choice. And uh, again, it, it was played for comedy. It, it seemed, you know, and it was, he was certainly funny. <laughs> and I actually, it's, it's, it's a testament to Brolin's, you know, to, to his own kind of uh, character uh, that he would take a role like that. That's not this, you know, completely on screen role. That's first and foremost, and that he's way down in the credits, you know, although he isn't, but you know, right. He, well, he's where he'd worked with the Coen brothers on yeah. no country for old men. And he's, he's been it, actually, again, a film I always come back to, I think it's better each time I watch it is Hail Caesar. Yeah. And he's, he's a central character, That's Eddie right. Mannix in that film. I think it's Eddie Mannix. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's, uh, I think he's terrific. He is. And, and that's so why I, I liked his portrayal in this film. Um, but I think any, if he'd been in it anymore, I wouldn't have, it wasn't too much. His, yeah. his role, I think, is a type of role that a lot of actors really like, uh, the character that's talked about throughout the entire film, you know, um, and then, you know, even though there's not a lot of screen time, yeah, uh, the presence is always like, uh, you know, like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. It's like the, the buildup of, and obviously Brando, I think the payoff is tremendous in, in that particular, I don't think the payoff with, uh, you know, Tom Cheney, what's he going to be like? You know, turns out he's a, a buffoon. Yeah. <laughs> and he kills, he kills, um, actually, he kills the father by complete accident, uh, you know, drunk, uh, drunk um, after uh, uh, losing a, a card hand, thinking that the, he's being cheated. So it's, it's, it's nothing that's premeditated. So this is a dim-witted character, I think, yeah. from Portis's point of view. And I think he, he I think he, I think he earns a little bit of pity. I mean, yeah. it, I the way brought, maybe that was, maybe that's kind of an interesting choice to, you know, whereas that you don't pity, the uh, Tom Chaney in, in the '69 version, whatsoever. But well, I think he's um, I think he's dangerous because he's ignorant. Yeah, you know, he's a reactionary person. You know, yeah, and, and and I think that you know when he when he's trying to reason out what to do once he's left behind, yeah. and he's you know he's like I'm I I'm not going to be safe. I got to kill this girl. Yeah, yeah. The solution is always a violent one with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he keeps harping on it. Why is this always happening to me? Right. It's, and it, you know, it's so it, it, there, there's the dark comedy, you know? Yeah. He's like a kid. He's like a, he's like a kid, you know, I, yeah. I'd be curious to know like what, you know, a lot of actors, they'll have a, uh, they'll, they'll have, they'll have a character or, or a, another star or celebrity in mind when they're, when they're portraying a role, like for exa example, um, um, Sonny Corleone in the Godfather. Why am I drawing a blank? <laughs> as to who the actor James is, Conn. Oh, James James Conn. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I always do that. The, uh, a, a legend. I'll forget. I'll forget his name. So yeah. Now we have to write letters of apology to James Conn and J.K. Simmons today. Yeah, I know. I got it. We got to put that on the list. Um, Don Don Rickles inspired his portrayal of uh, 
of Sonny Corleone. And, and you, you, when you learn that, you're like, of course, <laughs> obviously, you know, of course it makes total sense. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Um, can we talk a minute about, uh, so there, there's uh, two scenes in both films that are undeniably brilliant. And, and first of all, I just want to say, for me, it was interesting that the Coen brothers decided to tone down their usual style to tell the story in a much more straightforward manner. And I love the fact that they did that, but there's two scenes in both films to me that stand out as brilliant centerpiece scenes. One is the negotiation with Colonel Stonehill over the ponies and the other is the charge across the meadow. Yeah. Um, and I think that both films just nail those with the exception of the shot from Labeef in the John Wayne film. I think they just nail it. And they're also, if you watch them side by side, remarkably similar. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed have, that too. Even the cadence of the actors, uh, yeah in the two uh, no- negotiation scenes, I'm saying to myself, two actors actually sound, yeah. <laughs> sound alike. But yeah, I noticed that as well, Well, But the difference for me is, and first of all, there's, there's two wonderful character actors in both scenes, uh, Dakin Matthews in the Coen Brothers film, and Struther Martin. But um, to me, that's the only time I really bought Kim Darby as, mm-hmm. as Maddie. The rest of the time, she always looked sort of intimidated by her landscape. Yeah, and, and it didn't help that she was 22 and just had her first child. Whereas Haley Stanfield gave us the impression that, you know, she's still developing as a her personality. But anyway, um, uh, to me, Haley Stanfield is terrific throughout the the other film, but but that scene is really nailed by by Kim Darby, and it's they're fun scenes in both films. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, you're absolutely right. I, 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 you know, the the negotiation scene, and they both mirror the the novel very well. Yeah. Um, so you get that sort of comedic, you know, this Stonehill is completely exasperated by this young girl who comes in and, and outwits him uh, and out talks him and, and out negotiates him. And, and, you know, that's completely breaking the rules, but both scenes are absolutely wonderful. You're, you're right. Well, you know, you take away, you know, again, this is where the story holds up in both films is because the story is so phenomenal. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know. I'd love to meet Charles Portis and just say, you know, how do you write a, a Western that is such a great Western, but it also has its central character as a 14 year old girl heading off with a drunk and a strutting Martinet. It's just wonderful. Yeah, it sure is. is. Let me ask you guys this. I bring this up when I teach uh, the Western genre and film studies and uh, you know, it's, it's certainly a, a genre that has died out. Not altogether. You know, you'll have your occasional, art house western and i think you could probably make the argument that the uh 2010 true grit was kind of an art house mm-hmm. western it, i mean did it get a wide release maybe um but i think they're few and far between now why do you think they're um they're far less popular why do, what why was the appeal sort of lost to audiences what happened they, are the principles in that that are expressed are they are they passe? Have we have we moved past some of the, you know, the themes of some of these great Western stories? Or any explanation for that? You know, first of all, that's a great question, Bill. And I think that the answer may be beyond us. I can speculate a few guesses. One, I, I would put forth because if we look at the westerns that have been successful over the years, they're tremendous films. Some of the ones that have come out. Uh, you know, Dances with Wolves, Unforgiven, 310 to Yuma, which is a remake, this one. But I think that, the, I think it's, uh, they, they were oversaturated for a long time on TV and in films. You, you, you go to the movies and see Westerns, you go to TV and see Westerns, longstanding Westerns, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, 
what have you. And I think people just burnt out. And then once they burnt out, it, it goes into that cycle of parody, you know, blazing saddles and then revisionist dances with wolves and then respectful again, true grit. And so I think we're just in yeah. that thing where, um, you know, they, they're just few and far between now because you, to make a Western today, I think you have to either make a low budget one or a really great one. Yeah. I think that we're still using the same themes as the Western. We've just transported it to different time periods and different genres. The detective, you know, the detective genre, which is, is very popular, although now it's starting to, to lose some of its uh, credit, is, is I, I think, follows that Western. You know, it's, it's the sense of the buddy film in that way that we see these friends going off into the wilderness. It's just that the wilderness is different. The wis the wilderness now could be an urban scape rather than, you know, uh, monument Valley and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So this is mm -hmm. completely American too. And, and as our perceptions of, of who we are and where we came from continually change and evolve, I think it's only natural that film will show those, those things in, in different light. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a uniquely American genre, right? Yep. I mean, it's the only genre I can think of that takes place in a very specific geographical, uh, geographical location, right? Within a couple decades of time, you know, you go too early. It's not a, it's not a true mm -hmm. Western anymore if you go too late, you know. And I guess you can debate as to when that final, <laughs> that final Western year is. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it seems, you know, I think a lot of the, the principles or uh, the themes are, um, they don't seem to be explored as much, at least in this particular setting. Right. Um, so I don't know. Um, it, could it also be that the fact that it's su such a specific time genre, could it be somewhat of a limiting genre where perhaps the plots, the stories are, are, you know, they're few and far, at least now fewer and far between. You know what's weird about the Western genre? It spans another genre. But, you know, you have Westerns from the early days of the West, we're settling, we're, we're driving cattle, and from the later days of the West, you know, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. Yeah. But in the middle of that, there's a Civil War genre. Right. But yet, so the Western is before and after, but whenever you have the Civil War, it's always the Civil War. That's true. Well, some would say that the, that the true Western era is post-Civil War. They'll say that uh, you can have Civil War remnants in a Western, which you often do, like uh, let's say Outlaw Josie Wales or what have yeah, you. Right. Uh, if, if you go any earlier, then it, you're out of the Western window. But again, it's one of those things. Where, <laughs> when does purple become magenta? I don't know. <laughs> we're, in, we're, in, we're in the spectrum. Yeah, and it's it's not unusual for these cowboys to be um, you know, veterans of, of the Civil War. And, and they're, uh, again, following this motif about soldiers, right? They're lost, that they're suffering from what we now call PTSD and, 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 and they're making their way westward. So it continues on that uh, uniquely American westward expansion narrative. Um, and they're, they're also taking up the pioneer narrative, you know, that goes all the way back to, to when James Fenmore Cooper is glorifying it with, um, you know, the leather stocking tales. Mm. And that idea of talk about grit, it's, that's, that's uniquely American, right? That's how we see ourselves, that sure. we're pioneers in the wilderness, domesticating the wilderness, right. making it our own. Right. And, of course, we have Labeef and Cogburn serving very different elements of the Civil War, you know, with right. uh, Labeef fighting with Kirby Smith and, and a sort of what you would say the legitimate Army of Northern Virginia. Yeah. And then you have... Um, uh, Cogburn riding with Quantrill's Raiders in the in the Missouri Border Wars, where 
you know, supposedly they did horrific things. Yeah. Um, it's a great mm -hmm. dichotomy. Right. Right. So as a revenge story, I guess if you're, if you're going to label it that way, which obviously it's much, it's much more than that. What does it say about revenge? This, this, uh, do both films say the same thing or is, is that, is that just perhaps not a concern of, of these stories? I mean, it, when it's all said and done, what, you know, how is revenge portrayed? Well, in my opinion, the, um, the John Wayne film is it's just and it's settled and there is a sacrifice in the character of a beef, but to be honest with you, they don't seem to miss him very much. Yeah. Um, but in the Coen brothers film, it comes at a great price. It comes sure. at the, the, the loss of relationships, the loss of an arm, yep. um, the loss of Blackie the horse. And so I think that, again, I, think, I still feel the Coen brothers were following the hero's journey narrative uh, a little more closely than the Wayne version. Yeah, and Maddie. It seems like it seems. It seems like Maddie wants revenge more than justice. Am, am I am I wrong? You know, she. It's it's not it's not good enough for her to just have him legally tried and hanged uh, just anywhere it needs to be, where she can see it. <laughs> um, that's proof to your point that she doesn't yeah. want him. She doesn't want um, Cheney taken to Texas and 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 tried for killing a senator. Um, she wants him tried and and hanged for killing her father mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it seems a lot of revenge stories you know the you know like we can talk about hamlet where you know re revenge always it, you always come out empty-handed with with revenge you know and um but i don't know if it really matters with maddie i think it's, it's just what it's you know it's the right it's the right thing to do in her mind and, and how it makes her feel in the end is not necessarily the important thing it's just um she's duty bound yeah to to see it through and, and in both films immediately after tom cheney is dispatched they're moving on to the next phase which is getting out of the pit um and, and surviving beyond that and think about mm -hmm. the think about the the <clears throat> metaphor with you know the pit of rattlesnakes too so i that that says that's highly suggestive Right. Yeah, and again, in the Coen Brothers film, it's much more mythological. That that's yeah. their the you know literally entering the underworld, and then in that film, as there as Rooster's uh, riding her to safety, she starts to die. She goes into the shadow land. She literally sees Tom Chaney riding ahead of them. Um, you know, very and again, it's more of a of a, a traditional mythology there. At first, I was bothered by that that scene where he's riding with her and and the fake background when they're on the horse. But then I, I finally started to think. I, I think I know what the Coen Brothers are trying to do with that particular scene. That's her point of view. Her yeah, right, right, yeah. That whole kind of it's almost like magical realism in a sense. Yeah, which is odd. It's one of the few maybe little Coen Brother flourishes that they put in that you yeah. uh, in an otherwise fairly traditionally filmed right. Right. Scene. Um, I want to bring up the scene that I mentioned. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Were we done with that point, Bill? I apologize. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, Walt. I'm good. Go ahead. So there's a scene I find <clears throat> super bad in the uh, John Wayne film. And I, I know what you're going to say. And I, yeah, and I don't know if I mentioned to you, Andrew. But uh, so there's a scene, you know, Maddie's down at the river. Chaney takes her and drags her back to the outlaws and lucky Ned Pepper enters the scene and he and Rooster are negotiating across the river and Pepper saying, you know, 
you know, should I kill the girl? And Rooster's trying to bluff and say, uh, go ahead, Ned, she means nothing to me. So in the John Wayne version, LaBeef doesn't understand that Rooster is bluffing, and he steps in to interrupt him, and <laughs> Rooster rifle whips him with his rifle. He, <laughs> he slashes him in the face with his rifle. And then when, when LaBeef tries to speak again, he, he shushes him with his hand. And I, it just it makes me laugh because not only is that such a, an absurdly extreme reaction, but the shushing with the hand should have been the, your first action, not yeah. slashing someone across the face with a rifle. Right. Uh, <laughs> and I just, every time I see that scene, to me, it's so laughably bad. It takes me right out of that moment, which I think is a critical moment in the film. <laughs> I just have to say. Yeah. I had completely forgot about that. Maybe I, I blocked it out. <laughs> I tried to find a gif of that moment, but I, I couldn't successfully find it to, to send you all. There needs to it's be such, a gif I mean, of... <laughs> maybe that was just director Henry Hathaway, so frustrated with Glenn Campbell, which I yeah. you know. And I felt bad. I like Glenn Campbell. I, I, I like his music, and he, he was very self-aware about yeah. – here's an interesting piece of trivia. You may know this, but they originally approached Elvis – I did not know that. Really? Yeah. He, he wanted top billing, though. Yeah. And so they backed he, off, but they, they wanted he, a pop singer. He probably read the script and, uh, and said, no, this is, this is too good. I'm going to do clam bake. I'll follow Kerber Smith at a tree port. I don't have to hang my head when I say it. That's what Tom Parker told him to take that. I, I think what bugged me about Glenn Campbell is his hair is perfect the entire time. Uh, he had, hair, they had, had hairspray in the West, I guess. Yeah. Well, well, there is a scene, too, you know, in a couple of parallel scenes. You know, one, um, Glenn Campbell has a tense encounter with some rando guy at the boarding house in the John Wayne film. And you don't understand why he's angry at the response. They're talking about the dumplings in the soup. And yeah. Campbell calls him a bastard, a flat-headed bastard or something. And I'm like, well, there's no reason for him to have been angry at that. But but later in the film, both both scenes are played in both uh, films where um, in, the, in the John Wayne version, Glenn Campbell's trying to convince Rooster that Maddie has earned her spurs on the trail. And then Matt Damon's character says that, too. And to me, again, that's obviously Damon's a better actor than Campbell. And, but here's here's the thing is as critical as I can be of the acting and such in the John Wayne film. It's astonishing to me. That it's still such a watchable, yeah. effective film. How many films yeah. can transcend three leads that aren't really inhabiting their characters? Right. And, well, and that I, speaks I think, to... Um, that's, te that's testimony to, uh, you know, um, sometimes it's, you know, a film is so stylized and, um, you know, the, the strokes are, are really broad. You know, think of, a, you know, let's say Gone with the Wind, right? I mean, the acting is, is very melodramatic. But for some reason, you still, uh, you know, you allow, you forgive it. Yeah, you know, because the the, the story and the overall effect, um, especially when you're talking about you know these 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 sweeping epic films, you know, um, that seemed to be again, you know, in the case of uh, True Grit 1969, is kind of a throwback. Uh, which, but but also it, it does seem pretty edgy for a 1969 mm -hmm. movie. I mean, uh, or at least for a John Wayne vehicle. I, mean, I agree. It, there's there's violence there, and you know, for that time, I would think that was pretty. You know, pretty gruesome. But here's here's where they fall short. Let me ask you a trivia question. See if you guys can get this from the film. In the uh, in both films, who kills Tom Cheney? In both films, who kills Tom Cheney? 
It's the beef, right? The beef. Am I wrong? Well, in um, in the Coen Brothers films, is Maddie. They're wrestling with the rifle, but I believe in the John Wayne, it is LaBeef. Yeah. And I think that as edgy as it was, they still didn't want to show what was supposed to be a 14-year-old girl killing a man. Killing a man, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So pull back yeah. on that. What and happened again, in the book? I think it's LaBeef who kills him in the book. Yeah, I, I haven't read the book for about five years, so I don't comes, know. Uh, Tom Chaney, like like in the '69 version, is is looking into the pit, saying, "How do you like it?" to to Maddie, who's trapped. And I think um, Labeef regains consciousness for a second and 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 um, kills Labeef. If I remember correctly, that's the book. And Labeef does live in the book. Yes, he does. Um, I don't know why they chose to kill him off in the Wayne version. Maybe they transferred that grittiness to that particular moment. Yeah. And I have to admit, my, as, as I, 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 was, I was very sad when he died. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always interested in what the author feels about a film interpretation of their, of their novel. Uh, do you guys know how the author felt about the 69 version? I don't know. No. Yeah. I don't usually authors always hate, they always hate the, <laughs> they always hate when directors, uh, they, they, they cash the checks, but they often don't like the, uh, the results. <laughs> but I think in their own way, okay, I'm curious. this is a rare case, but in their own way, I think both novels do justice. I mean, both films do justice yeah. to the novel, uh, you know, in, in their own way. And, and again, I think it's a testament to the 69 film, how well it, it is held up as a compelling story. I, I agree. Right. Yeah. It's a testament to Portis's book. It's great source material that both films are working from. And both films right. are smart enough not to monkey with it too much. That's right. That's right. I interesting difference. If you watch them again, uh, the uh, 69 version is mostly in daylight. Yeah. And, and the Coen Brothers is mostly in darkness and, and, and snow. Yep. And it's kind of cool. Just a different look. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The Coen Brothers certainly bring out that American Gothic. Yeah. Um, aesthetic, you know, which... It's great to look at. I think that I really hope they keep making westerns because I've I've loved their uh, their their output so far, especially uh, especially you know this one and um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs was excellent. We should do that at some point. It's a, it's well, they they don't like, uh, um, they don't skimp on the actors that have any amount of screen time. They, they find actors. And if you watch true grit, I think this is true. I think in the John Wayne version, there's a lot of actors like the sheriff that recommends the bounty hunters, the, the woman at the hanging that talks to Maddie that seem like actors who are placed there to deliver particular lines. Whereas in, in my opinion, the Coen brothers, they, they choose actors that look like they've lived in the environment. Yeah. That they oh, have definitely. a history and, Absolutely. and you know, that attention to the minutia, just rounds it all out for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, have we talked this one through, do you guys think? Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we have not hit upon, but hey, you know, we're uh, we're restricted by time. <laughs> well, I'd love someone to tell me where Wilford Brimley appears. Yeah. I'm wondering if he's not the the, the voice of Jay Noble didn't dag it. No, he, he can't be because he actually because he makes of an appearance. Yeah, where does? I I don't know when he appears, but I bet you he looks sixty years old. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said to he you, probably... Bill, that 
he, he was in Cocoon where he played the old man in the nursing home. And he was <laughs> 15 years younger in that movie than I am right now. And he's my age, right. he's my age exactly in that movie that I am now. So, <laughs> something to be said. Yeah, about. Uh, I'm sure if you, if there's a scene where there is an elderly man sitting down in a saloon or something, that was probably him. Probably yeah. him. Look at him. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to toss it to you for the sign off bill as. All right. Well, everyone, uh, thank you for uh, joining uh, joining us on this edition of uh, Classroom Critics. It's uh, always great to talk about. Actually, it's a two-for-one deal, right? Two films, one episode. Yeah. So um, um, I'm always happy to talk about Westerns. And uh, we'd love it if you could, uh, you could join in on the discussion. Log on to our Facebook page and uh, give us some comments about uh, anything we've talked about and anything we might have missed. Uh, and also, please comment on our, on our iTunes uh, podcast account so in the meantime i hope you have a a great time a great week and uh see you guys uh next time okay thank you